Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Before we introduce our guest, let me ask you to please like the show on iTunes. It will take all of 30 seconds for you to do, and it'll help ensure that we keep bringing you great content. When you like us, we move up the charts, so to speak, and thus others discover us and the world goes round. Before, uh, before we move along, I want to say a word about our sponsor, Mac Weldon. I talked a little bit about them uh, last week and the amazing hoodies they sent, the hoodie they sent me and T-shirt and a pair of socks. I, I think back to uh, one of my favorite episodes of the podcast uh, when I was interviewing Katya Beauchamp from Birchbox, kind of a bit of a style icon herself, and she was talking about her style trends for the year, and she pointed out funky socks, and I was kind of proud of the fact that I was wearing a pair of somewhat funky socks, because I definitely do not consider myself to be a, uh, a style maven at all, uh, and... Um, and then in my box last week, along with this great blue hoodie from Mac Weldon and uh, a great T-shirt, was uh, you know a, a pair of very basic but very fun brown socks with a pink toe, and uh, I added them to my funky sock collection. And uh, as I've been noting, uh, and as anyone can see, I've kind of been I've been walking around the Upper West Side in my blue Mac Weldon sweatshirt uh, since it arrived. It's it's incredibly comfortable. Uh, if you listen last week, I even tossed this is a fact. I tossed uh, an old sweatshirt so that I could keep this in my closet. Um, and uh, and I, I feel uh, feel really good about the fact that I can offer everyone who listens to our show twenty percent off at Mac Weldon um, because it's something that I'm enjoying so much. And uh, another thing that I really enjoy because I'm not much of a shopper is the fact that they've got a uh, very very generous and forgiving uh, return policy. So you know you, if you happen to order something from them and you you don't you know, for whatever reason it's not for you, just send it back and they'll refund your money. Um, so I, you know, with Valentine's Day coming around the corner, maybe you're scrambling to get something for someone. Maybe this is the thing. Maybe you're just like me, where you want a couple more pairs of funky socks in your wardrobe. Um, consider it MacWeldon.com, and you can use the the uh, the discount code, the promo code code Build Things, all one word, Build Things, in order to get a discount with them. Um, so use that, and you're rewarded for listening to the show and buying yourself something simple but um, fantastic. And on to Otto Cedeno, our guest today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. For those of you who are new to our show, and if you are new to our show, you know, kind of like shame on you because you've missed some awesome entrepreneurs on the show. But in all seriousness, for, for those of you who are new to the show, it's produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates to launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to, an, to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America, and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. As I always note, I've been involved with VFA since its inception, and I'm a huge advocate. I wish it had been around when I graduated many years ago. Today, we have a first for the podcast. I have a guest host, the 
ever irrepressible Sam Rosen, who was our guest a few weeks back for a double episode. Sam is the founder of MakeSpace, a multi-location storage facility which makes storage easy by picking up your stuff, cataloging it, and bringing it back when you need it. Sam is a, uh, all he knows is entrepreneurship. I'm sure he'll add a lot of spice to the show. He's our color guy today, as he's dubbed himself. Sam introduced us to a variety of, of his friends. He's very immersed in the entrepreneurial community uh, after he was on the show, one of whom is today's guest. Today's guest. He's a singular individual. He's our, he's our guest and our guests. Otto Cedeno. Who adds picante to the show? <laughs> yeah, as you'll find out, he adds picante to the show. Very nice. I asked Sam to join us to interview Otto. Sam graciously agreed. I'm guessing that I'll be asking about the past, and Sam will be asking about the future. Otto Cedeno graduated from NYU's Tisch School with degrees in film, and he had a high-profile job with Livestream when he took a huge leap with no net. With zero restaurant experience, he determined that he would launch a Mexican street food restaurant and quit his job to launch Otto's Tacos. In doing my research for the show, I felt it necessary to go to Otto's West Village location, and I am a true believer, and I had a few tacos moments ago and am uh, certainly hopped up on uh, taco energy right now. His tacos are simply and phenomenally delicious, and both adjectives are very relevant, simply and phenomenally. Um, Today, we tell the story of that risk that I referenced a moment ago, we also learn how Otto developed his concept and grew it into a three-chain location and growing, ready to dominate the map. Um, so here we are with Otto Zedeno. Thank you so much for having us, guys. Yeah. yeah I'm super excited to yeah. be here. You are, maybe you aren't singular. Maybe you maybe are Maybe there's two of me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's how we built three uh, <laughs> locations. There's multiple versions of me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jeremy and Sam. It's always a pleasure to see you. Buddy. Absolutely. So... One of the things that that that, I, that struck me as I was doing my research research for the show is is the the lack of of, of continuity, um, at least from my impression, between going to art school. You were a graduate of the Tisch School of Arts and starting a taco restaurant, and uh, and it seemed like a pretty dramatic pivot. And and what was even more interesting to me is that you seem to really be in an exciting nexus of film and technology. Um, you know, very successful producer at Livestream, um, and yet, you know, Otto has apparently been been gnawing at you for years. Um, I, I'm just curious, like, was the passion for film waning, or was it just overtaken by this need, this need to start Otto's Tacos? Yeah, so you know, uh, film was always my first love. Um, I've been in, in love with storytelling specifically since I was a kid, and I think we all were as children, playing with GI Joes or whatever toys we were, and making scenes up and. Uh, my love for filmmaking and storytelling really began there, and um, it never waned. If anything, it just transferred. So, you know, one of the things you, you kind of pick up in Tish right away is how to collaborate and how to create. Uh, and whether that's across uh, the film media, uh, TV media, photography, those are the obvious sort of jumps when you kind of go to film school. Um, but what I realized is that it's not so much different from a restaurant team. Because I get all the time, that people ask me, like, wow, you made this crazy jump. Like, how different is your life now that you're, you're running a restaurant as opposed to a film uh, film set? And I'm like, you know what? It's like so eerily similar, it's kind of freaky. And granted, you know, you don't have cameras anymore and you kind of substitute that with beef or things of uh, commodities that sort of spoil and you kind of have to learn a new life lesson to sort of ma manage that. Um, but, you know, with that, with that exception aside, um, it, it's it's really similar. There's a ton of creative points in building a restaurant from scratch. Um, when you talk about, you know, the name the logo, the branding, the food, the plating, the ambiance, the down to what the stool textures are going to be like. What's the counter texture is going to be like? How, what's the process in terms of a guest walking in? You're really building an experience um, that's no different than experience of you know sitting in a movie and watching a story being told, or sitting in a chair in a theater and watching a play unfold. So you'd be surprised how much of the creativity in terms of that energy just transferred right over. It's really, really interesting, actually. And I, um, I guess I'm very thankful to have the film background because in a weird way, it helped me with so many of the facets of opening a restaurant. Um, obviously not the, the, the traditional technical line cook or uh, cooking aspect of the whole thing. That's something we had to learn, or I had to learn specifically on the fly and you know get used to that really quick. But so much of it was applicable, and I thought that was sort of uh, an interesting thing that not a, pop, not a lot of people realize. You know, I read um, Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, it's which one is one of my favorite books. Great book. Great and book. he talks about getting into um, the food business because a lot of his travel um, was centered around going to various places, mm -hmm. trying the food, and that's really what got him excited. 
<clears throat> a lot of restaurant uh, owners, restaurateurs, often come from food backgrounds. They often come from family businesses that are potentially in the food industry. Um, was that in your business? Did you grow up around that? Because, you know, it certainly is a huge leap. Um, you know, with film, you can edit it, you can show it to smaller subsets before you release it to a wider audience, but it's a lot harder to do that with a restaurant. And you kind of nailed the concept the first time with that second store, although I'm sure it went through many iterations. So. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you kind of started to get the experience in that. And I'm going to quickly add, not just a leap, like, I mean, a leap, like the New York restaurant That's scene, right. like nothing yeah. more vicious than, than the New York restaurant scene, I'm sure. So like, you know, really jumping into the fire quickly. It was a huge fire and it was a huge jump. Um, you know, I, my you know, family background, no, there was no restaurant background. And, you know, I loved, I loved Danny Meyer's book. And I think it was very inspirational in terms of, of what it takes to be a restaurateur in terms of the hospitality. And it's so applicable, by the way, to not restaurants. And that's what people don't get. Because I recommend that book all the time. That's right. And I tell them, like, wait, I don't care if you own uh, you know, this kind of company or that kind of company. You work in this company. Read this book. It'll teach you how to be a good human being to other people. And I think that's really the message he tried to send in that book. And it was loud and clear to me. Um, so the, the leap for me in terms of identifying that I wanted to do this was just being an avid consumer of the product. Uh, specifically tacos in the scope of Mexican food. I'm obsessed with Mexican food. I mean, who isn't? Um, but me, to the extent I was consuming Mexican food probably more than the average bear. Uh, I'm probably, <laughs> you know, a four to five w a times a week guy before I even open autos. I mean, it's like the first place I, I try to eat when I fly back to L.A. When I land, it's either two places. We're either eating in and out or eating Mexican food, and there's no exception to that rule. So it was in my DNA from a consumer level, not from a family level. And I just knew the product so much from, you know, uh, repeat business um, as a consumer that I knew what I loved and I knew what I didn't. And I knew when it came to thinking about what was what was Otto's going to be, because the initial scope was like, okay, let's open a Mexican restaurant. Okay, what kind? Is it a full sit down? Is it a quick service? Is it um, is it a, does it have a bar? Is it is it just beer only? Is it something small or is it something grand that has a mariachi band playing in there? And the more I thought about it, the more I just kept fine-tuning it and starting from the simple uh, building blocks and bases. Okay, I love tacos. Let's just let's just build something with just tacos. And then from there, I got several aha moments. I'm just like, oh wow, wow. This what if what if we just did five tacos and just made the tortillas fresh from scratch every single day and just added a few menu uh, side items in the menu to really complement that and you know, build them in really small spaces, something that we could easily run with zero experience, um, or at least me having zero experience. Um, and uh, it was something, something manageable. Um, the more it grew and the more we were adding different items, I was like, oh, this is getting a little too complicated for me because you're right, I came from a, a film background. I was, I was getting into new waters and it's kind of like, if you don't know how to swim, why would you jump in the deep end, right? So I definitely put one foot in at a time with the steps in the kiddie pool, and I realized, okay, this is deep enough. I think this is going to work. And once I realized it was going to work for me, I realized also, like, wow, this is actually something that's kind <clears> of interesting. <throat> this doesn't really exist anywhere. Um, and the whole tie-in to New York was the simple concept of, you know, put it where they ain't. And that's where I think the business model really, really um, uh, stood out, is that we wanted to do L.A. tacos in, in New York because simply I felt like they were being underrepresented. Um, in a time where I was going to NYU, when Sam, you and I were in NYU, and, and there wasn't really that much Mexican around, and that kind of was a bummer. No, I wouldn't walk through Washington Square Park either, but that's besides <laughs> the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was kind of changing when we were there. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and you know, Ada, you, you knew exactly what the product was that you wanted, which was the LA street food. You said that to me before you actually started the restaurant. But the interesting thing was, you know, you picked the location that you knew. You grew up for many, for four years, um, and then of course the years that you lived in the area, um, in the East Village location where, you know, your first restaurant was. Um, you also knew the New York market at that point because for the most part of your adult lifehood um, at, that, at, at that time, you had spent a lot of time in New York. So you really knew that location. Not only did you know, okay, I need to do a limited number of things here, which is why your menu is smaller potentially than other menus, why you can have fresh ingredients without freezers because you don't need um, that many items on, on the menu. But you also knew exactly the area, which, you know, Second Avenue is kind of king for nightlife in that particular area. There's a lot of bars and restaurants in the area and a lot of young people. So you really did well. What was kind of going in your mind there when you were even looking at the location? Um, and I love the story about the restaurant graveyard before uh, before you moved in, if you could talk and elaborate about that. Yeah, too. there was an Eater article that said that we picked a location that was a, a restaurant graveyard before us. And I think it probably got that notion because it was just, you know, 
bad timing. There's a timing's a huge component in every business in every industry, and uh, it was you know bad timing with bad you know I don't want to say bad, but you know uh, you know the not appropriate concepts in the appropriate space. And luckily, we knew that we had such a small footprint or need of a footprint with just a five taco menu that we could make that smaller space work on our behalf. And there was something about Second Avenue that I loved. And I, I always knew when we were building the sort of business plan and idea for Autos Tacos, I said, there is only one home for this first location. And I said to myself, it's the, it's the East Village has been a home to me for so many years. And I knew it like the back of my hand, like you said. And secondly, I asked myself, I said, okay, if I'm only going to have one of these, like I knew I wanted a few of them. But if I was only going to have one, God forbid, or if that was just the plan and, it, and you know uh, things changed in the middle of opening the first one, we said, hey, we only just do one, where was that one going to be? And that was so significant of a question because if that were to happen, it needed to be someplace that I knew was very much home to me. And the East Village has always been my home since I moved to New York. So that was the importance of that location. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I want to actually take a step back to maybe towards what Sam was asking about in the beginning. Um, you know, family background. Like I read that, um, you know, you, you left Livestream and kind of couch surfed, maybe spent some time on your parents' couch for a while. Yeah, um, I've actually talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have said, uh, con- like t- confronting this with their parents and like, hey, I want to take a big risk is actually harder than maybe even talking to investors at times. Like parents, 100%. Are, parents tend to be like conservative, like, oh, we just we just want you to have something safe and for you to be, you know, in in the lockstep in your career where you should be. We worked How- so hard for you to do this. It's not a <laughs> restaurant. That's exactly it. How. How did you did you feel like did you feel like you had a lot of support out there? You know, was there? I mean, I know you're your own man, but were your parents like, look, do this for a year, we'll help you out a little bit. But like after that, you you got to get out of our basement and get out there and go back to live stream or whatever it is. They never gave me a timeline, so to speak, but they always well, my mother specifically, and she's an amazing you know tr- traditional Hispanic woman that's just full of energy and full of guidance and um, likes to uh, give her feedback to her sons, you know. And so I never got the whole timeline conversation, but I did get the, hey, what's your plan B? I definitely got that one quite a few times. And I think that's... Um, did, you get, did you get any don't do this? No. It was sort of like, are you sure? Like, this sounds crazy. Like, I don't know. And I'd be just so passionate about it. I'd be at the dinner table with my, with my mom and my dad and my, my brother when he was in town. And I'd be telling them, like, guys, but if you do this and, like, look at the logo and here's that. And, and what if what if you just, you know, set it up this way so people could come in and eat this way and blah, blah, blah. I think this could really work. This could be a smart business play. Um, and they would just be thinking about it and kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, but you're really <laughs> going to quit your job and do this? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, At the same time, were you seeing anything else in the market? I remember there was the cupcakes phenomenon, and then there was the lobster roll phenomenon. Tell me more, because you, did you see something yes, happening? I did see something happening, and what I saw happening was the um, emergence of single-serve restaurants. And I think it kind of got coined a name SSR. I don't know if that ever stuck, but um, single-serve restaurants like uh, lobster places that only sell lobster sandwiches or like the cupcakes places that only sell that. Uh, or mac and cheese restaurants, and there'd be people, there'd be lines out there. And it makes a lot of sense because we have places that only would sell pizza. So this concept is not novel. It's been around forever. You just didn't really realize it was happening, especially in New York, because there's tons of pizza, right? And um, I said, well, listen, I think you can do this with tacos, because I, 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 Mexican cuisine is one of those cuisines like, you know, I feel like American salad, uh, sushi, sometimes Chinese. You can you can have it once or twice a week, and you're, you're okay. You don't OD on it. It's not like a, a very hearty crazy meal like Indian, which me personally, I can only probably do once a week. Um, and the idea of single serve concepts were around before autos came. And I think those may have been a big player in the front or back of my mind to making me decide to do the similar, uh, sorry, the simple menu uh, concept behind the whole thing. Uh, when you were, um, you know, you're, you're talking about this, this talking with your parents, like, you know, the logo and the location. I mean, there are so many steps, like you left, um, 
you know, you left live stream in March of 2012. Yep. You opened up the first location in the East Village in this restaurant graveyard that you have redeemed. It is no longer a graveyard because of you. Well, not going uh, well, yes. But yeah. So far, so good, right? <laughs> in November. So, um, and, and I have this great quote for you here where it's like, you, you said to Forbes, I wish I knew that everything takes twice as long as you thought it would. Ultimately, you can only control the pace so much, which um, you could already shaking your heads, so let, yeah. you, let you jump oh, in here. Man. But like that's just like the, if there was one lesson, that's probably it. And I think that uh, coming from the, the sort of live stream background and what we were sort of um, trained to do in that company is it's live. You know, it, there is no, there is no, hey, the show's at Saturday at seven, we're live at seven to eight. Oh, sorry, you know, we're a little late with this or this didn't happen. We're going to do the show Sunday. That that was just, it was inexcusable. You couldn't do that. So my DNA for the last five years prior to opening autos was we do it live, we do it live, we do it live. There is no sort of um, pushing things back. And once you got into the restaurant world and construction and permitting and all these other things, and especially in New York City, it, you, you think something's going to take a day, it takes a week. And then if you plug all these things in like a, a Gantt chart, if you're like project managing it, you, you know what the effects of those kind of things can do. It can push you back, you know, uh, exceptionally far in your timeline. And um, one, thing is I, one thing I feel like young entrepreneurs do really well is budget uh, for finance. I think, I, I think everyone's really, really hypersensitive to budget. Like, okay, let's make sure we really manage our money really well, which is great. But a lot of times I speak to people and they always find that um, time management is always kind of all over the place. And uh, certainly we fell victim to that in terms of thinking we could be way more uh, cavalier with um, our time goals and realize we were at the mercy of so many different agencies in New York. So what, uh, I mean, what were some of those setbacks? What were some of those delays that were so frustrating to you? Yeah, so in our, in our first location, our third location, um, we had an issue where we had to bring in gas to the building to be able to cook hot food. So uh, that involves the city with permitting, it involves Con Edison. And one of the things you don't realize is that there's one gas company in New York, it's Con Edison. And so if they say, hey, it's gonna be six months, it's going to be six months. You can't get a separate bid from someone else to bring in gas. So you, you're at the mercy of their timetable. And literally, for the first location, I, I remember having waited. They had said, you know, it's going to be two months. Uh, I'm at two months and a half. And I literally went to their office on 14th Street, and I sat in the lobby for three straight days. Were you paying rent on the building? Uh, at that point, I think, yes, we were. Wow. Yeah. So we were, we're not, now it's like, you know, it was game on. I'm like, okay, I have to do whatever it takes because we're totally eating rent and not um, being able to subsidize it with sales. So this was really not good for us. Um, and I remember just saying, okay, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. And I literally went and sat in the lobby in Con Edison and just said, I need to speak to someone. Like, I have to get this resolved today. And right. I waited and I waited and no one came. Came back the second day, started getting some answers. And the third day, uh, I remember they sent me to the power plant up on 14th Street. There was some like weird office over there. I needed to speak to someone. And I get there and the security guard, that only guards like the entrance, because it's only vehicles only, I said, hey, I'm here to talk to someone. They're like, uh, people aren't allowed here. I don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. So I had to get in the security booth and call someone in the office inside the security booth and explain my situation. And that person was my guardian angel, I suppose, because they immediately pushed my case through and we got our gas turned on the next day. But I would literally had to stand inside of a security booth in the parking lot of Con Edison to make that happen. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't done that, I don't know how long we would have been waiting. And then our third store, I had to eventually do something similar. I had to. Um, basically go back and try that tactic again and it only took a few hours but I knew it was going to work the uh, <clears throat> I'm curious about the like you know the process we're, we're getting into so many different areas and that, so that's many. one of the, the, the fascinating things about a restaurant actually when you talk about the film set I was like yeah that is a good a good allegory because there are so many moving parts right permits and people and locations and you're right branding and, and all these types of things investors um, investors in a restaurant uh, you know are they is this something they understand? Like, are they like, oh, these things get delayed? Like, uh, you know, are there, or is this something where they're, where they're like, why isn't this thing open? I, you know, our investors in particular were very understanding about the whole thing. We, you know, we kept them in the loop. They were um, really, really uh, supportive and just anxious to get the, the doors open for the first one. So um, they've been incredibly uh, supportive and have offered so much guidance and, and knowledge to me as a first-time restaurateur. Um, and that, thank God, has not been one of the issues that I've had. How do you pitch? Uh, but I don't know if these are are these experienced restaurant investors. They were just I mean, half of them are just investors. Uh, there's a, there's another group of them that are you know are experienced restaurant investors. Well, I, I think I'd like to chime in here and sure. say you know from the from the venture capital perspective, I raised a couple rounds of venture capital. Um, you were certainly ahead of the times on single serve restaurant in terms of the item you want, whether it was the cupcakes or the pizza or the, the here the single serve taco for Mexican. But also, you were you're kind of ahead of the time on this what I'm calling 
in food tech. And starting about 2013, I started seeing financing rounds for Veggie Grill by one of my investors called Lowercase Capital. You saw Sweet Green out of DC. Uh, Revolution, you know, Steve Case's uh, Revolution raised, uh, led a growth round for them. So you were kind of ahead of the curve again. What was the appetite, pun intended, like at the time <laughs> for, you know, essentially doing a restaurant concept and also more importantly um tell us about that because did you go to just wealthy individuals did you go to traditional venture capitalists did you pitch them did you go to maybe a bank and try to get a small business loan had you applied online because certainly now there are places like bond street which enables entrepreneurs to um you know a lot have a lot faster turnaround time talk a little bit about how for people who are potentially thinking about starting their own restaurant like you did what are kind of you know the first initial sources of capital other than maybe friends and family which i imagine you might have done too. Yeah, sure. Well, first and foremost, experience in the industry certainly helps. Yep. And I had that working against me, unfortunately. But <laughs> um, so we had to uh, lean on two huge pillars. Um, we had to lean on uh, passion for the idea. And we had to lean on educating the investor in terms of exactly what we're doing. So our business plan was as detailed as we thought it could be. And obviously, we didn't have everything we needed on there, but we, we had we had most of it, and some some of the things were dead on right, and some of them obviously, and you know how this this goes. You, yep. you start the business and things change, right? You can only plan your first move, really. Um, and we had to educate them first and foremost that yes, yes, it's a restaurant. Technically, we're selling food, but it's not really. It's more so uh, a brand that happens to sell tacos, because all we sell is tacos. We're not we're not we don't have a giant overhead. We're not looking for a space that seats you know 100 people with so much staff overhead and rent overhead, it's really, really finite. We try to like limit it. And once they started understanding that, the next thing that jumped in their head was scale. And I said, yes, it's so much easier to scale something smaller when it comes to restaurants, as opposed to something giant that's like a nightclub or you know, full service restaurant with a nightclub, or et cetera. You get the point I'm trying to make. And once we started educating on that, um, that's kind of how we got people interested in the very beginning. And we were going to, um, and we started talking to wealthy individuals at first, and uh, a friend of mine who read the business plan, a very dear friend of mine, he uh, loved it. And he fell in love with the concept. And he said, yes, I, I think I can help you put some people together behind this. And so he introduced me to one of his friends. And this guy jumped in right away. Yeah. And then he introduced me to someone he worked with. And um, unbeknownst to me, they had a conversation. This is actually a great story. They, they had a conversation. And you know, the second person was just kind of like, hey, you're investing in a, in a taco company? Like... This guy has no experience. What are you doing? This is this is ridiculous. Like, don't do this, right? But that guy took the meeting with us anyways. And I remember going to his office. We had we had this awesome meeting. And a few weeks later, he calls me and he says, "Listen, I this was going to be a flat out no meeting, but not going to lie, I loved what you pitched us. I love the concept. I love you. Like, not only am I going to tell him to do it, but I want in too." And I was just like, "Wow, this is crazy!" Like, and this was pretty early on. This was maybe um, call it May. 2012. When did I quit? I forget. March. You have the date. I'm so bad at time. <laughs> March 2012. I Thanks, think I got appreciate there. Appreciate it. Yeah. So this was right around the corner from there, and I was like, "Wow, we already have you know two people who are very, very um, seriously interested in this concept. This is crazy." And then from there, we had a string of amazing luck, and they were you know uh, pitching it on our behalf. And um, this uh, gentleman, one of my investors, is named Will, and he. He was the guy that was basically like, yeah, no, um, this is a bad idea. And then he changed his mind and he was like, this is great. And he became such a pioneer of the brand. And, and you know, he's, he, he's pretty much the guy who kind of put all the financing together and helped us out with that. So we brought some few people in and we had an awesome string of yeses. And then by December 2012, we pretty much had everything ready to go. And I remember sitting there. By this time, I'm also living with my parents. So I decided to save some money. I'm living with my parents and we're basically, quote unquote, funded. And I'm ready to start planning 2013 and move to New York and find our location ready to go. Uh, last second, literally the week before Christmas, one of the investors pulls out. Hmm. And so we're back now to three-quarter funding. And I'm just like, oh, my God. This leases is... signed? Like No, no, no leases no. signed. We, we were still, oh, that's a whole other story. We'll get into leases in a okay. second. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Leases is insane. And um, so I remember thinking, like, so defeated. I was so defeated. And I'm like, okay, we'll get back on the, the, you know, the, the horse and start doing the uh, dog and pony show again and pitching. And then we got a series of no's. And it was crazy. I was like, oh, man, we were on fire, and now we kind of cooled off. And we were pitching to different uh, wealthy investors, different private equity firms we were trying to talk to. And it was kind of a long series of no's. And thank God, in the end, there was another uh, financial firm in LA that loved it and jumped in to save the day. Um, and at that point, it was sort of like uh, 
it was sort of this crazy mindfuck for me. And pardon me, the French, but it's it's the only way it's the only way I can think of saying it because I was I was three quarters away funded. You know, my idea had so much attraction. People were so behind the idea. My, but by this point, my parents were all about it. My friends were all about it. They were giving me such support. And I remember, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is going to happen. You know, we just got to get this last bit of money. It's going to happen. But I remember thinking that working out of my parents' house. You know, at 11 a.m. in my boxers, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm like living at my parents' house and working in my boxers. Like, am I a failure? What the hell's going on here? Yeah. And it totally screws you with your head because you're just like, God, am I a loser or am I successful? I can't tell. Yeah, <laughs> you were also particularly ahead of the market too, which is, you know, there's been a lot of companies, like I said, Bond Street's one of them, but also another one called Circle, which is almost like a Kickstarter but for local products. Yeah, or they're local great. Business. And they're absolutely great, and they help provide entrepreneurs who are trying to start businesses like this more brick and mortar um, with other alternative means of financing. But you didn't have it at the time. No, um, I, so had, I had to go on the, you know, here, here's me. I'm Otto. This is Otto's Tacos. Put my head on the table and start talking. Are you cooking for investors? I mean, are they tasting the recipes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, advice for any restaurateur that's coming along, if you if an investor says they don't want to try the food before investing, that's a red flag. Probably you shouldn't sign with them. Because, that's interesting. You, know, you have to eat your own because, dog food because they we, say, well. Yeah. <laughs> well, because there were some investors that we talked to that ultimately said no, that they never once asked to try the food, which right. I thought was kind of interesting. I'm like, really? Right. It's like investing in like a tech company. Like, hey, no, I don't want to play with the product. That's cool. Right. Just here's the money. What? Right. Doesn't make sense. So uh, it's in, you, you found you really felt like there was a hole in the market, and and uh, and then I so I read this from a, from a from a food blog from I believe the week before you opened your doors in your first locations, your first location. Um, holy mole. The East Village is getting yet another taquera. Oh, the East Village is getting yet another taquera, and it goes on. It goes on to list four other taquera that had opened in the East Village at that time. All of which are, are, are seemingly still open today. I mean, when you when you finally opened, were you looking around saying like, "Oh, uh, maybe other people have caught on to this. Like, maybe I missed my window." Or were you as bold and confident as you were when you started raising the money? No, it was a blend of both actually. Because I remember that article very very well. Um, it came out right before we opened. Uh, the location in the East Village and I know the other three or four spots you talk about and they're all great and I think that it's just an interesting New York City is just a very interesting beast because there's so many mouths to feed and you can't get bogged down with what everyone else is doing because that's just going to distract you and make you make mistakes so for the way we look at it with our operations like we wish everyone the best of luck and we, we try to support all of our neighbors whether they sell Mexican food or their Chinese restaurant or their coffee place like the coffee place across the street from our East Village spot we're in there all the time and we support them and we love them and we send them businesses whenever we can because it's camaraderie at the end of the day it's not competition with food I've always felt it's it's camaraderie um, there's something a little bit more uh, family and friend oriented about the service industry than let's say the tech industry um, so I never felt a need to sort of pay attention to those other locations in, in the scope of it being competition. I'm just a huge believer it's a distraction. Just focus on what you're doing and do the best job of what you wanted to do and that's it. That's all you need to worry about. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So here's a review from I think the first uh, the first week or two uh, of, of of when you were open, uh, and this is a quote. That was bar none the best fucking taco I've had in my entire life, and like you know I, I mean. Did you expect the kind of reception you were going to get? Did you? Expect, I mean, was it was it a hit from from day one? Were there people lining up? The, you know, before you opened your doors, how long did it take to, to take off? When did you know this was something that was as viable as you thought it was going to be? I, I don't know, and I, I'm still pretty humbled that people say that. It's really ridiculous, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm speechless when I hear stuff like that. I really don't know what to say other than thank you, because uh, we have such diehard. Uh, fans. I mean, I know I know some of our regulars that are in there four times a week, and some are twice a day, which doesn't wow. make any sense to me. But people do it, and that was the first sign that when we opened the doors, East Village, um, the first few days, we were seeing multiple people come in twice a day, and that's when I was just like, "Holy cow, what's going on? Like, this is crazy." And but, but were you were you thinking like, okay, this is kind of like a big, you know, big opening for a for a for a movie that kind of dies sure, down? Yeah. Like I'm terrified, or were you go ahead? Well, I, just, I rode the wave. I said, listen, okay, let's ride the wave. Let's keep working hard. Let's make sure we're here. We're focused, and and we keep um, you know uh, building uh, the sort of operations on how we actually do this. Because you know, when we opened the doors, we kind of had an idea of how to do it. 
but it, it, it's it's been it's taken up until now. It's taken two years to really nail our operations. I mean, that's it's uh, it's 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 a constant constant improving on that. But in terms of you know the guests coming in, we just always try to make sure that they have the same exact experience, whether it's the first store, second store, or third store, and that's just an ongoing challenge. You know what's awesome here is what you've really done is um, I love my food puns. Grow the pie, wow, as I like to say. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, and you know what's what's fascinating here is the food tech companies of the last few years have have really done an amazing job of moving you know people's dollars or wallets from potentially cooking at home to going out more, and certainly living in a place like New York, what you're finding is less retail stores where you would buy books, let's say, and buy on Amazon instead, and you're spending your money on experiences. I've had many of my, you know, either late nights or quick evenings on a a very quick, I need to get a bite in 20 minutes or less, and Otto's is great for that, or if you're at 2 o'clock in the morning and you need a bite then too, it's also great. Um, But what's awesome is what you've done is um, ride this wave again of people in New York City that are potentially cooking less, going out more, a, a, a millennial or a younger generation that's valuable valuing experiences over tangible things. And a quick bite at Otto's, um, which is affordable and tastes really good, um, is not a surprise that you're seeing someone coming in four times a week because what that that reality means is they're probably eating less at home. In fact, um, I look at this from the space world, um, the, the size of the average kitchen in London over the last, I think it's about 40 or 50 years, has shrunk about 30%. Because you know, in the 1950s or 1960s, you might imagine um, the, the home being, the, the kitchen being the center of having people over, uh, having a meal, but instead, what that's turned into is a quick bite at a place like Otto's and then out for a show. And you actually said something to me um, when I saw you the other day about dinner and a show. And I'd love actually to share that um, with with the audience because it was a really interesting point, um, especially how you think about the food business. Yeah. So um, with, with our this kind of happened because you know we opened our Hell's, Hell's Kitchen location uh, on Ninth Avenue and it's so close to so many of the theaters. And I was like, okay, what's our differential factor here? What, what's, what makes us different than other spaces? And, and I started thinking about, like, when I go see a show. And I'm like, well, okay, so it's usually 7 o'clock show, 8 o'clock show. But that's right when I eat. So then, therefore, I have to plan dinner at, like, 5 or plan to eat much later at night. And it just takes up so much of your time. You think a three-hour show plus an hour and a half dinner plus waiting in line. For, you know, we're talking five, six hours at this point on a Friday, Saturday, or midweek or whatever. And I'm like, this is crazy. And so then I started thinking about, you know, positioning our Hell's Kitchen spot. I was like, hey, this is a great place to go uh, before a show. Because, I mean, you're in and out in 20 minutes or less, depending on what you order. And uh, and you can go see the show. So you're, you're adding basically maybe a half hour to your schedule. And I thought that was kind of like a big aha moment. But what you really talked about, too, <clears throat> is that dinner in New York has turned into the theater. And that people are going into, um, you know, restaurants and sitting there for two or three hours. And, you know, that dinner experience is now the show. And certainly with the, the food porn and all the, you know, the Instagramming and whatnot, it takes a long time. And what I love about your, your restaurant, especially in the Hell's Kitchen area, is this is now a place that's affordable. Um, it's kind of guaranteed that you're going to be out of there in a half an hour. You don't have to Every rush. Time, yeah. And you can still go see the show without being hungry. So I, I just, I love that that location in particular. In fact, maybe one of the questions that we should talk about next is really like choosing that location. Um, exp- you know, expanding to other places in New York versus going to other markets. Yeah, like I yeah, absolutely, that's, well, that was exactly where I was going. And what, I, what I'm fascinated about, like it's, it's, it's like doubling down seems to have you know, a, a huge amount of risk in, in, in that it can sink the ship. And I was sort of imagining some massive chain out there that, that might have been, that just picked the second location and died. And, you know, some some Starbucks competitor yeah, or something like that. In that, fact, like, it was Starbucks notoriously went into Chicago and had a lot of trouble. So Starbucks might not have existed because of because of how badly they apparently did My in investors Chicago. actually backed them and they had to bail them out when they were in Chicago because of this. And then it just, it was a bad market. Right. And it's, it's like, that is to me like you know I'm just to, to beat this you know to be a dead horse here the, you know it's like if, it's much easier to go from 20 to 21 than just go from 1 to 2 of course so adding that next location becomes there's less risk obviously as you diversify and have more locations how did you determine it was it was time and how much diligence did you do on these other locations both let's go with both the second and third time yeah so the when, when we had one, we were managing certain uh, KPIs, key performance indicators. That would, once we started seeing these, we realized, okay, this is probably a good time to start looking. What for. are some of those like, for example? Just um, so like sales, sales, um, food cost controls, labor cost controls, 
certain things that, that we knew we could manage it. Like we said, hey, okay, we, we know we can expect this sort of volume in terms of a dinner rush and a lunch rush. Um, we know what it takes on the labor side. Uh, can we manage it? Did we build a concept that requires too much labor and therefore we can't scale? Did we build something that requires too much food prep, therefore we can't scale? So we had to uh, identify all these issues right out the gate and find issues. And one of the first ones we had right out the gate was labor. We were staffed way, way, way too high in the first two months. But we kind of planned it for that because we didn't know really what we needed. And then as we kind of figured out certain aspects, we would you know eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. And then we streamlined the process as much as possible. So once we got some of those pieces in play, we realized, okay, from an operational standpoint, we know we're okay to move on to a next door. Um, also, identifying some key leaders in our business. So uh, we have three stores with three uh, GMs. All three of them started out as uh, line cooks for us. So we promoted within, and we're huge about that. We uh, taught them, uh, gave them all the tools that they needed, taught them all the managerial skills they needed, are in the process of always teaching them. And they teach us, by the way. It's sort of a beautiful dialogue we have with them, which is fantastic. And um, and so, they see this upward mobility, which is yeah, which thing. is great. It's I mean, like, you never want to work for a company where there's sure. no mobility. Yeah. Anyways, That's right. Right. Same thing in the service industry. It promotes long term, you know, being with the company, Absolutely. building a career, yeah, and yeah. having a loyalty to the, to yeah, the what, brand. Yeah, one of the great things that we have about our employees is they they love our brand almost as if it was theirs, and it's so humbling, and it's and it's a beautiful thing to see uh, day in and day out. But so back to the scaling of store two. Then it was a matter of like, okay, you know, we're seeing the KPIs now. Let's start looking at um, uh, leases. And by the way, to backtrack, one location. Finding a lease for the first location was almost near impossible without any experience and having any locations in New York. Like we literally got so lucky. I had to go into this, the restaurant, the graveyard, what we call it, and ask that owner and say, hey, are you happy here? And it was by chance, by the way, we got this one. And because it was owned by a guy that was operating another business. And he said, you know what's so funny? I've been trying to get out. I said, here, I will buy you out of your lease. And (laughs) that is how I got my first one. Because I had brokers everywhere looking for me. And they were just sending us either, either the inventory was really bad or they were sending us, it was uh, stuff, locations that were just out of our budget or just didn't make sense for us, too big, too small. It it was very hard to find the first one. And once we found the locations we wanted, everyone said no to us because we had no experience. So it was like. Awesome example of an entrepreneur not taking no for an answer. No, no, you cannot. Breaking down a wall. You have to, you have to. You have to sit in the lobby of Con Edison. You have to go into the business. Is, Absolutely that's right. Yeah, and I, I definitely got chased out of a few businesses when I asked him with uh, with the brushes. One guy just like I came in on a Friday, and he was empty, and I asked him like, "Hey, are you trying to sell your business?" And he just literally grabbed a brush and just shooed me out of there. And he was just like yelling at me, saying like, "You know, f you, you think my business is failing?" I'm like, oh, "I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, man. I'm so sorry." <laughs> By the way, they're still around, so that's awesome. Well, that's uh, good. And um, so the same thing happened with our second location. So now we're ready to expand, and we feel like we're, we're ready from an operational standpoint, and we feel like we can take this risk and doubling down and uh, we're looking and we have the same problem again you know people are landlords are like ah you only have one spot you've only been business this long maybe maybe not so we find this one place again it's a key money deal we're buying out a current operator uh, and it's the location that we have now it's on um, 7th Avenue South and West 10th Street and so we're bidding on it we're bidding on it and next thing you know last second they decide to go with a different buyer and we were so bummed because this building was so gorgeous beautiful corner space brick building I fell in love with it right away, and we lost it, and I was so bummed. We had to go back out in the streets and find another one. And then at this point, we're looking in different neighborhoods because we we're kind of getting antsy. And then I remember having uh, a coffee with my broker a few months later, and I said to him, I said, man, I really wish we got that space. It really sucks. I'm really just, it just I, it's, it's gnawing at me still. And he just goes, oh, that one's back on the market again. I forgot to tell you. I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, their deal fell through. I forgot to tell you. I'm like, oh, my God. Why did you say something? Like, go in there. Put a freaking yeah. offer in on it. Let's get an LOA on that space. And we went back in. And because their deal uh, fell through, we were able to get more favorable terms, which was fantastic. And we ended up getting the space that we wanted originally. And so we signed that lease um, towards the end of, uh, what would that be, 2013? No, 2014. And then we opened that one um, January of 2015. One of the biggest challenges that I actually saw for your business um, at that time that you've been getting these locations is there's actually a pretty strong market and the, the economic climate has certainly been in the favor of the landlords Big than in, in, in terms of the tenants. Um, also, your business is a little bit, I think, um, recession proof in that um, it's a food, people are still gonna eat out. They're not gonna eat out, you know, they're not gonna spend $80 on dinner. They might do more meals at 
10 to 15 to 20 dollars with their friends it's so funny you say that because that was my first argument against my mom when she was like this is not a good idea i said it's recession proof. exactly right yeah. so what i love is is like i still want to go out and eat but i'm not going to maybe spend 45 dollars or 60 dollars i might spend less money so w- what was interesting is you were putting yourself in a position to try to get into these buildings when you know certainly that landlord was taking a probably a much higher offer certainly in this building falling through you got the opportunity to go in there and they were willing to be a little bit more reasonable um but maybe as you start to think about expanding out to either A, doing your fourth, fifth, sixth location in New York, mm-hmm. um, or B, you know, maybe it's Los Angeles where you're originally from, maybe it's like a contiguous rollout, like you do DC or Boston, which maybe are similar in terms of demographic, but um, contiguous is beneficial because if something goes wrong, you don't have to jump on a plane, you could be there in an hour and a half or, or two hours on a flight uh, here on the East Coast. And, and also um, with that, what are you thinking about the climate for, you know, just in general in the economy for thinking about to start planning out for your next growth or do you want to say, you know what, I'm going to leave it at three stores and, and we're going to run these for the next few years and go really deep in Manhattan? How do you how do you kind of think about growth? You know, what what the, are things I like about having Sam, with Sam on the show? Is he does the same thing I do, which is ask seven questions at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do that all the time, so the, just go through them one by one. And I literally try to remember <laughs> all of them, and I forgot already. They're very <laughs> thematic. Yeah, the, the human brain can only remember three questions from Sam Rosen. So uh, what were they again? I'm kidding. So the... It's a question we ask ourselves all the time. It's like, okay, we have three, and and where do we go from here? And uh, I mean, I think right now we have uh, three responsibilities. The way I look at it, and the responsibilities are to our our staff, and uh, our communities that we're in. So we have amazing. Uh, three locations in the East Village, West Village, and Hell's Kitchen. And those are three, believe it or not, incredibly diverse communities from each other. Because we have people that come to our Hell's Kitchen spot that have never even heard of us. And that shows me like, wow, New York City is a very big place and people are very much neighborhood driven and they won't travel very far sometimes. And it's crazy. You see that all the time. Or I I see that all the time. Yeah, Totally true. So I think there's a lot more due diligence that has to be done um, for a smart brand to build. And I think entrenching your roots into these communities you're in is actually smarter than growing too fast. Your, your marketing dollars, if you do spend on paid marketing, go a lot further as Agreed, well. Agreed, yes. And your word of mouth becomes a lot more of a local network, right? So Agreed. here in New York City, we've got the same, you know, we've got multiple dig-ins and you've got salad rest places. Um, you've got certainly a ton of juice presses as opposed to being in other markets. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Are you thinking about opening up fourth and fifth and sixth restaurants? I mean, definitely. It's in the back of our mind in terms of uh, putting a few more in New York and multi-city, of course. I mean, I think we have... You know, a great concept that scales that fits uh, a lot of budgets. I like to think that we are kind of appropriate for the blue collar, the white collar, and every shade in between. It's like the Budweiser of tacos. My yeah, my yeah. marketing teacher once told me that about uh, our tacos. About, about, no, about Budweiser. It's you know, you could be a billionaire and you could be you know, um, you know, lower class, you know, lower um, income income class. And people, st- that's the amazing thing about Budweiser is everyone drinks it. So you're right. Your taco is so good and I think so affordable that it really is um, accessible to and, all. And I think that's 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 the key to thinking about your product sometimes you have to really think about who your key demographic is and we definitely have a key demographic and actually it's slightly leaning towards females in the 18 to 25 bracket but hmm. you'd be surprised that um, why i don't know no clue huh. maybe it's because our chef's so handsome <laughs> yeah <laughs> chef joe Negro. he's the most amazing guy and he's a very good looking strapping guy <laughs> and it's probably the reason um they're certainly not coming to look at me um they uh, where, was he, where were we going? <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about your good looks. <laughs> we're talking about ex- expansion. But it's, it's another form of expansion, and I'm going to have to credit Sam Rosen with, with, with this question, um, is, you know, like, delivery is so huge these days. And, and, you know, what used to be a restaurant just contained by by the two or three turns you're going to have in an evening, depending how fast you served, is now, you know, now your footprint is potentially way more vast because of delivery. Always been a big deal in New York, but maybe even you know elsewhere it's it's you know really taken off as well. But you know, you've also got not just delivery, you know, in the moment of prepared food, but things like Blue Apron and and a friend of the show, our Harvest and and uh, and Maple, who Sam introduced me to, you know, are is the idea of uh, you know the location-based restaurant, or at least revenue coming strictly from 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 a couple, from mainly from your locations, is that passe, or is the is the is the retail you know bricks and mortar restaurant uh, you know eternal? So I mean, my initial reaction is hell no, because I think people always need a place to go. Um, obviously, we're doing this chat in the winter, so the delivery sales are a little higher than normal. Right. But once it thaws out, I mean, we're, human, we're, we're animals intrinsically, right? So we, we, we love being outside. And once the weather thaws, like, I can't tell you how many times I enjoy sitting outside 
with a nice glass of rosé with Sam Rosen and uh, and hanging out. And I think you're always going to need the brick and mortars to be able to get out and enjoy the actual space that is the city, that is a town, that is a whatever place you're in. So I think the brick and mortar, I don't, that's never going to go away. What, what's what's putting it in jeopardy, obviously, is the, the strong market that you mentioned earlier and the high rents, especially in Manhattan. It's getting a little scary where not a lot of... Um, Operators can afford it that are mom and pop or very small chains. It's 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 getting it to be a playground for the the very rich in terms of the companies, and it's turning into a marketing deal. You put a you put a store in Manhattan as a marketing net zero play, and you make your money in the you know sort of B markets, C markets, which is kind of it kind of sucks because oh. you know there's amazing neighborhoods in Manhattan that people want to live in that are kind of kind of affordable and. It's not going to be affordable very soon. But what what that might mean actually in the future is you actually do a restaurant that maybe has a, a location that's a little bit further away, uh, so it's maybe not as expensive. Absolutely. And you partner with some type of platform that enables you to do delivery, um, either a you know one of the big players out there because there's certainly a lot going on in the Uber, Postmates, uh, DoorDash, and all these other ones. And the awesome thing that I learned today, which I absolutely love, um, is that your boxes where you you patented an insert to go into the box to enable tacos to be delivered without spilling over. Yeah, that and that kind of goes back to our, our business plan is like we had to like wow our investors. It's like, okay, what can we think of to show that we're really thinking about this with zero experience? What, what can we bring to the table? What can I bring to the table? And I was thinking about um, eating tacos. I was, I was in LA and I was, I was at a, a you know, regular dive spot and they just served it like a traditional white paper plate and they were kind of all scattered everywhere. I'm like, I need to take these at home. And he just literally wrapped foil around it and gave me the plate back. And I'm like, this is crazy. Um, and so I thought, I was like, wait a minute, what if we can build some sort of like little cubbies for each taco? And then I kind of designed that, and it went through a few iterations. Um, a friend of mine helped me design it in the beginning. Um, he drew some sketches for me and put in the business plan, and that's what kind of really wowed investors. Like, wow, he kind of really thought about this into the future. And we ended up filing a patent for it and getting a design patent on it. Um, utility we're still kind of working on. Um, but yeah, now we have that now. And so now uh, we have this amazing product that's not only great in-store in experience, but it was designed to be taken. And to segue back into your original question in terms of uh, you know, sales outside of the four walls, that's an incredibly huge revenue source for us. We do so much delivery. And in fact, we're growing our catering wing. As Sam would know, we catered his, was it a holiday party? Yeah, it was or a you post-holiday like, holiday, holiday party. Post-holiday, okay, because I thought you guys, because it was recently, it was last week. and I It was the reasonably like, sp startup responsible holiday party in January. Got it. Where's my invite? I was not on the list? Uh, <laughs> well, Otto was catering it. and then We'll it was, talk well, after. We'll, yeah, we're going to have some, okay. some yeah, drama. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I, I made up for, for bringing tacos today. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was Sam. Sam's idea. Um, so yeah, no, you know, uh, Joe. Joe is our chef, and and I. We we constantly think about how we can grow revenue streams, and you know, uh, we we put our heads together and we try to really push the delivery. And what we're seeing as a great revenue source in New York City is actually our catering business. Yeah. So we sell them as a build your own taco box. So everything comes separate, which is fantastic hmm. for any type of event. So whether it be like an office lunch, a sales meeting, you know, a, a party or a huge event for like you know, fashion week, this and that. Or if it, one guy is really, really hungry, I get it, no judgment, okay? <laughs> so it's, you know, I've done it. Um, but it, it really services so many uh, facets in New York City, and we're seeing that just really explode um, over the last year and this year specifically. But the already. interesting thing here is when you think of you know advertising, right? Traditionally, um, companies like mine have to you know advertise on Google to find customers, or if you're a life insurance company, you have to advertise people searching for life insurance. What's awesome is that if in the future there are delivery partners that work with you, and again, there's a lot going on in the last mile delivery space um, for food in particular because it's just such a high use case. Um, instead of having to advertise out there, you could be listed on one of these or multiple of these platforms, pay some type of commission, and that's essentially a pay-as-you-go, and get the added benefit of the marketing um, opportunity, which is when that person says, oh, I had that Otto's Tacos at lunch, and now it's a nice day, I want to go enjoy that glass of rosé on the sidewalk on 7th Avenue, um, <laughs> they can come down to the store, or they're walking by, and they say, oh, I remember Otto's, so that's really awesome, too. We should start selling rosé, you the idea. <laughs> White girl rosé from my favorite, um, the fat Jewish, yeah. but that's... Um, no, it's, you're incredibly right. I think that um, the sort of online marketplace can, it, it serves two facets. It helps, you know, grow your brand. And one thing about Mixspace that, I mean, you guys have awesome trucks that are branded green and they pop on the streets. Absolutely. And that's fantastic, right? I mean, I think, I, I see your guys' trucks all the time and I'm like, there it is. Yeah. And it's because you, you chose a very strong color palette. I think Absolutely. green is a very, very contrasty. And you would think even in like against a... 
you know, some foliage. It still pops because it's not a yep. natural looking green. It's a very much. And you've done the green. exact same. And we did that with our yeah. orange. You know, so we built all of our uh, storefronts to have these like huge orange letters, and we really love that orange color. And, and if I may, the name Otto, right? Like the only other Otto, as everyone maybe knows from The Simpsons, that's the, the name. You were the first Otto I had ever met in real life, um, and the name Otto's Tacos, even you know the the, the play on words itself. I just the the, the picture of a man in a hat, uh, the orange, uh, the orange. It pops really at night with the with the white kind of around it. Yeah, um, it's just a really really distinctive brand. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, I, I was actually 100% against the name in the very beginning. I wanted something more play on words, something funny, something cool and edgy. And I remember we built like um, a Wufu form. You remember that? You know, yeah, of course. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're big. They're yeah. huge. They're great. Um, and so we built a form and we sent it out to a bunch of friends and we said, hey, send this to people you don't that don't know me. Send this to a ton of people and That's get some awesome. raw feedback. And I had tons of things on there. And then a friend of mine said, hey, you should call it Otto's Tacos. I said, no way. That's so gimmicky. And that she said, just put it on the form, trust me. And I said, okay, fine. Put it on the form, landslide victory. Like hmm. 95% or higher first votes. On what that. could Otto's Tacos have been had, had, had it not been up there? I know, that's could, what I, could, I, mean, I, mean, I I want actual names. Could, yeah, could what would the other been, name no, you considered? I can't remember. I think we wanted to call it, like one was like uh, Tacos Mas Tacos Tacos, but it was way too long, but I loved it. Um, another one was, uh, you're putting me on the spot. I have no idea. I can't yeah. remember. Okay. It was so long ago. But, you know, uh, essentially, it was after that moment, I realized, like, wow, there's Otto's Tacos. I started designing it, working on it, working with the designer. I'm like, wow, this is actually kind of beautiful. All right, I'll go with it. It is great. It's just, it absolutely. It's, it's a very distinctive logo. So uh, one one last question that I have, going, well, at least on, on, the, on the subject of the future, and again, a little little Sam Rosen credit, but, I mean, is there a day where, where you imagine... Either either your restaurant, maybe you go into D.C. with no locations and, and, and just have a central commissary that's geographically located and just have excellent delivery, even, or even if it's not you, is there a day where you imagine there's an online-only restaurant that, that just serves a broad geographic swath of a city? 1,000%. That's yeah. happening. That's going to happen. We've thought of it. We haven't done it. Um, it's something we're thinking about. Um, I think a lot of other operators are probably thinking about it. I don't think it's a novel idea. And I think what's going to push us to probably do that, us being you know, restaurant operators, is the rising cost of rent. It's like how to, how right. to, how to reduce overhead right. but keep your uh, sales high. And if you think about it in cities, right, like the, the cost of rent continues to rise uh, in, a in, big way. In, in many cities. Right. Um, the other thing, though, is I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I remember seeing something like there's the top you know, 30 cities and then the bottom X number. This is obviously a Ziphian distribution and some amount of population density. But even secondary and tertiary cities. So maybe this concept of the online-only restaurant doesn't, uh, actually, the, I should say, maybe the brick and mortar is supported in cities like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago. But when you get the secondary and tertiary cities, even, let's say, college campuses like Happy Valley, you know, uh, State College, Pennsylvania, we've got 100,000 people. Um, you might see um, opportunities to be a delivery-only restaurant with a very small kind of like commissary. Um, there are probably even concepts out there where someone else might be running multiple ones of these to offer much better food because typically in these secondary and tertiary markets, the food options are not as good. What you've done is you've hit on a niche, you've hit on something scalable that works, um, that you can repeat over and over and over again here in New York, that you can do delivery really well because you can get it to them pretty quickly because it's a limited menu. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have a ton of you know additions and subtractions like you may at a normal restaurant. And also the catering is pretty simple for you guys, and that's why our company loved it so much. It was it was pretty you know you nailed the basic concept. It's a really good taco. Um, but the opportunity I think in the future is for sure that there will be online only restaurants. And Otto's Tacos maybe what you even see is more and more restaurants like a Maple like an Otto's, have a much more limited, you know, Sprig and Maple, the, the kind of the two big names, have a very limited daily menu. Very similar to Otto's in that they do just a few dishes really well. But they rotate than, it so it doesn't become stale. That's right. Yeah. But Mexican something you could eat every day. Yeah, I can at least. Uh, I'm just spit spitballing here, or maybe this is what you said earlier. But I mean, could, or could you just have like an autos and a couple of other concepts within one central commissary that delivers multiple different concepts to the single to the well, same I mean, location? It's essentially, what you're having. I mean, we have yes. a, we work with a company called Caviar, and they're amazing partners. And that's essentially what they are. They're online ordering and logistics company. So they um, have like the online platform for us, and our guests can go in there and order. And then we get the information, we make the order, and they send a courier to come pick it up. And it's that simple. That's right. So they're growing that market already. That's that's a that's a hands down um, a real. 
product that is going out that is that is helping us grow those revenue streams. That it's totally uh, back in your argument that it's going to be a lot more digital, and the brick and mortar space might become uh, more decreased in terms of expansion. I actually somewhat disagree with you on the sort of uh, the markets of the secondary and tertiary. I think that's actually the markets where you would want to put a brick and mortar because you could afford them. And in the mm-hmm. big markets, you probably want to do the commissary stuff because you want to limit that overhead. And those are the kind of markets uh, you know if you think of like a, a, a DC or a Boston or a, a Chicago like downtown uh, above the, the the river, those are the markets that are really going to want delivery stuff. It's people working in offices that can't really get out sometimes. So that's probably your better play to do. Well, and, and to counter that, I don't, I don't know if I'm right. But I don't know if I'm right either. In places that. like New York, you get the problem of, okay, we only go within our local neighborhood, but mm-hmm. in, when I go to visit my family in Burlington, Vermont, I'll drive across town to go to the better you know, Vietnamese place. So potentially, it goes back to the other maybe way, which is like, both, yeah. and it's probably a mix of both. What I actually see is, and the reason why I suggest maybe the, the commissary-like approach in a smaller market is you don't necessarily need the overhead. Plus, you have a scalable and repeatable business. True you've too, got yeah. your, you know, your meats. You've got your veggies. You've got your, um, uh, your tacos, the shells that you make yourself. But, but you could train someone else to do that in a scalable mm-hmm. way. And certainly with technology today and the delivery side, get it to someone quick that it's actually really still tasty and fresh, which is a lot, which is a very difficult experience. There are many restaurants that don't deliver in New York, as you know, because they feel like they can't deliver the food. This is the same level of experience. Um, and certainly, the companies like Postmates are trying to do that for them on their behalf with very fast delivery. Um, But the food itself was not made for delivery. You designing a box that holds tacos a certain way was not just intended for takeout, I have to imagine, but at some point you said, one day we should have a, uh, delivery as a big part of our revenue stream, and probably because you you probably did a lot of delivery in New York. Yeah, no, I mean, mean, again, this this whole company started off as being a, uh, you know, me being a consumer, right? Autos Tacos was born as me being Otto, the consumer of so much Mexican food. So, (laughs) in New York, well, and, and food in general in New York, right? And delivery, specifically in New York as a, you know, an NYU student and just a regular New York City resident. So when we built Otto's Tacos and we built those boxes, it, of course it was designed in mind for takeout and delivery. Like we knew that was going to be a big revenue stream that we needed to grow right out the gates. I think we got to wrap here. I, I, there are so many questions we could we could continue to ask, um, and uh, so many that we missed. But I, we wrote, we were all over the place and covered most of it, and it was awesome to have you here. I want to thank Thanks you for so being much, here. Man. I love being here. Um, and uh, and we'd love to follow up as as autos goes from three to six to nine to central commissary to delivery to, to conquer the conquer the country and and, uh, and the world so uh, thanks so much for being here thanks Jeremy thanks, thanks Sam, Sam. Appreciate it. oh thank you for having me and, always uh, a pleasure and I'm always terrible wrapping the show so we'll see everyone <laughs> uh, see everyone next time thanks How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.